0: I think we're going to go ahead and begin. Shinobu wants to speak for a while, and I know people will need to get back for their classes. So uh, I'd like to thank you all for coming. I know it's getting late in the quarter, and the weather is good, and it's hard to come to a a, a talk, but I'm glad you did because this is an important talk for the Mershon Center. And uh, I'm I'm appreciative of Shinobu Kitayama coming down from Ann Arbor uh, to be with us today. He's the professor uh, professor of psychology at Michigan and director of the Culture and Cognition Program, at the University of Michigan. His current research focuses on cultural variation in various psychological processes such as self, cognition, emotion, and motivation. And we are talking this morning also about cultural neuroscience and the underpinnings in the brain of uh, cultural patterns. He teaches courses on social psychology, cultural um, psychology, emotion, and culture and globalization. He's the author of The Handbook of Cultural Psychology with uh, Dove Cohen. He's also the author of The Heart's Mind, Emotional Influence in Perception and Attention. And he's also the uh, author of Culture and Emotion, The Study of Mutual Influence with Hazel Marcus. And, of course, his work with Marcus has been seminal uh, and very widely cited in social psychology all over the world. Uh, as in, in addition to serving as co-editor of numerous books, he's currently the um, editor-in-chief of Personality and Social Psychology Bulletin, a leading journal in personality and social psychology research. He's received lots of awards, uh, fellowships from the Center for Advanced Study on Behavioral Science, a Fulbright from the American Psychological Society, an award in 2010, the recipient of a John Simon Guggenheim Memorial Fellowship. So he's been busy, he's received his PhD from the University of Michigan, where he teaches now, and today he's going to lecture on the ethos of independence across regions in the United States, the production adoption model of cultural change. So it was great All pleasure. Right. Thank, I you. Think
1: it's Thank you. Thank you. Well, it's um, just tremendous honor and pleasure of me uh, to come here, uh, despite the fact that I'm from Michigan. Um, I've been treated so well. Uh, I've been having such a wonderful time uh, since I arrived. Uh, late in the afternoon yesterday. So I'm very, very grateful. Uh, I'm very, very excited also uh, to talk about my own research on culture and regional variation within the United States in this audience, which is very different from uh, what I usually have, uh, which is psychologists, anthropologists at the best, uh, here, the audience is extremely diverse. I'll do my best, so, but please feel free uh, to raise any questions if you have any questions uh, about some details or procedure or something like that. I, I try to be very straightforward, but uh, uh, any questions, are just welcome. So let me start uh, by introducing this interesting quote. <laughs> Weirdest people in the world. Do you know who that is? Uh, in a recent paper, in press paper, uh, by Joe Henrich, uh, Steve Heiner, and Aaron Norton essentially they said Americans are very weird. By weird, they mean, of course, Western-educated, industrial, rich, democratic people. So, just, But of course, some nuance implied here that Americans are in some way very, very unique and uh, to understand American people, therefore, can be very, very important. So here's a quote. The empirical foundation of the behavioral sciences comes principally from experiments with American undergraduates. The patterns we identified in the available data indicate that this sub -sub subpopulation and of course, Americans is not just a sub-population, but, uh, well, you can make some reasonable case that American undergraduates are still Americans. This data indicate that this particular population is highly unusual along many important psychological and behavioral dimensions, and this particular group is highly unrepresentative of the species. So, fine. <laughs> then, what's the next? Well, I'd like to suggest that it's very useful to look into this very question. Well, first of all, is it true? And if it's true, why? That might be the case. And given the fact that so much data in psychology and many other neighboring disciplines are coming from this particular subgroup, it seems very, very important to address this very issue. So, for example, here this is meta-analysis conducted by a colleague of mine, Daphna Oizerman, on two scales, one individualism and two collectivism. And this analysis is pretty straightforward. Zero point indicate American mean on the basis of a whole bunch of data. Zero individualistic dimension. Americans are here. Everybody else is less individualistic, according to this instrument, which is obviously very crude, but that's measuring something, I believe. And. Y-axis represent collectivism, that is the degree to which you have commitment to groups and so on. And again, Americans are least collectivistic and Americans are most individualistic. Again, just within group variations can be tremendous, by the way. But nonetheless, if you aggregate the data in this way, it seems pretty straightforward as well that American people are unique in some respect. Particularly the commitments to independence or individualism. Uh, of which I will turn to later. Here's another set of data by Ron Inglehart, uh, another Michigan, uh, fellow. Uh, he, he and his group used wild, wild value survey to map out different countries and different world in terms of two dimensions. Two dimensions they call survival and self expression on the one hand, and traditional and secular orientation on the other hand. Generally they discovered that there's pretty straightforward relationship with wealth, for example, more wealthier and more industrialized your culture is, or country is, your country tends to be more self-oriented and uh, more secular. And Americans are unique in this regard as well because, wait, wait a minute, sorry, Here, Americans are very individualistic on one dimension, and yet, they are extremely religious. And that represents one very interesting exception. And then, just one more set of data. This data comes from our own research, where we measured how narrow your attention is by using some cognitive measure, which I don't have to discuss in any detail. Attention can vary in the width, so some people, or sometimes every single person, can, can show very narrow attentional characteristics. Some other times, attention can be more holistic. And this can vary across different situations, but also this has some dispositional characteristics so that some people are much wider or narrower or more focused in attention. And, and the other dimension which you look, looked at is attribution, namely how you explain other people's behaviors. In the United States, there's very strong tendency for dispositional attribution. So when I see Rick doing something very nice, if I was American, I might jump on the conclusion that Rick is a wonderful person, whereas in many other cultures, this bias toward disposition is much weaker so that they are more attuned to some situational constraints, for example, social roles or some presence of some other people, and so on. So situational attribution tend to be more prominent sometimes in many other cultures, whereas Americans are more narrowly focusing on this position of the person. And if you map several countries we tested, Americans are here, Japanese are there, and some European countries, including UK, Croatia, and Germany, uh, are located somewhere right in between. So from these data, it seems sensible that Americans have very relatively uh, strong tendency toward independence, individualism, and this happens not only in explicit cognitions and values, they appear to endorse in survey research, which I described, but also more implicit psychological tendencies, which are often associated with independence or individualism. That is, well, I didn't explain it. If you a very individualistic orientation, you know where you are looking at. So your attention tends to be narrower. And also, if you apply the same assumption that the individual is internally motivated, and then dispositional interpretation of behavior tends to be more common. I hope that makes sense. All right. So I have just said to you that Americans are probably one of the most individualistic and least collectivistic peoples, and yet they are very high in religiosity. And also, at the same time, Americans do show highly independent individualistic mental habit or biases. And I just explained focused attention and dispositional dispositional bias in attribution, but I'm going to talk to you some other characteristics later. Very consistently, American groups tend to be very extreme, even in comparison to their Western European counterpart, to say nothing about Asians. So interesting question is why. And today, I'd like to suggest that settlement history of this country has a very important factor in influencing this very strong commitment to independence and individualism in the contemporary American society. And in addition to that, I'm going to discuss some work on regional variation within the United States. And the idea is that by looking systematically on regional variation on this particular dimension, it might be possible to analyze some historical sociocultural processes which have given rise to the contemporary ethos in independence. That's the basic idea. Well, okay. So today, I'd like to discuss this new model, model we propose, what we call production and adoption model in cultural change. Basic idea here is that to understand cultural change, you really have to understand two sub-processes. One, ways in which new practices, new values are produced. Sometimes you have to create something new to survive. For example, if you go to Silicon Valley, you really have to work very hard to create something new to survive. And I like to argue that something similar might have happened in the American frontier. And as a consequence, new practices, new values of independence and individualism must have been produced in the frontier. Second process, which is really important, equally important in understanding cultural change, is the adoption process. You really don't have to create anything, and instead you can adapt existing cultural practices and the cultural ideas from other groups for some different reasons. The first process, would depends on survival. Survival could be biological, could be political, could be economic. But the second process essentially depends on within group competition, of essentially social prestige, reputation, and so on. So in a way, this is very obvious and clear in some respects. For example, I'm wearing Western clothes, despite the fact that I'm from Japan. Right, why is that? Well, the reason is that Western society, Western culture is associated with wealth, status, and many other things in the last several several hundred years. And as a consequence, lots of people in the world tend to imitate what Americans do. And imitation obviously happened in the domain, which is imitable, which is easy to imitate. So clothes is one of the things. But in many other cases, which are equally important, cultural practices, can be imitated, and that's very important aspects uh, which need to be taken into account in understanding uh, cultural change. And finally, I'd like to argue that once some set of cultural practices, some scripted ways of doing things which are produced or which could be adapted, once those practices are set in place, and then they really provide the landscape of social life, and once you engage in that pattern of social life, then your psychological processes tend to change in some systematic way. So, I, as I just mentioned to you, that American attention tends to be narrower, more focused, and also Americans tend to engage in more dispositional attribution. And I see those psychological effects as a consequence of engaging in some individualistic, independent cultural practices the origin of which somehow need to be understood. So let me give you some detail. I already gave some of it. So well new values and practices are often produced to deal with adaptive challenges for survival. Survival could be literally biological, as in Western Frontier, could be economic, as in Silicon Valley, or Uh, you know, many cases can be considered. So for example, Silicon Valley norms encouraging technological innovations in venture businesses may be invented and may be created because of this. Confucianism as a social means to negotiate peace during the conflict-ridden era in ancient China may be understood in a similar way. That is, you need to create new values and new practices to deal with life or death kind of problems. And finally, U.S. frontier in the 18th and 19th century may, have been, may be understood in similar terms. There are several unique conditions in the American frontier. First of all, just country is so huge. country is just so huge, and as a consequence, social coordination tends to be very hard. Population density is very low, so even when you want to cooperate with somebody, there may not be anyone around you easily. And also because of social mobility, residential mobility, it's very hard to establish and maintain reciprocity. So for these reasons, we believe that you know, social coordination is very hard to take hold in the frontier life, and social coordination is sometimes unnecessary because, again, low population density and possibly dry climate. And one very interesting idea in psychology uh, in the last few years comes from the idea that susceptibility to infectious diseases is a very important factor in accounting for tight social regulation and collectivism. And, well, you might find it a little bit too far-fetched, but... When infectious disease become real problem, countries tend to close their doors at the border, for example, and law enforcement tend to be more accepted, and so on. Generally, susceptibility to pathogens tend to be associated with high collectivism, and again, that consideration suggests that American American frontier may be associated with some degree of individualism, and you and equally important, self-selected satellites. Who, what kind of people come all the way from Europe to the United States, you might ask, right? And what kind of Japanese came all the way to, Jap- to the United States for graduate study? And there must be lots of self-selection. People who are novelty-seeking, who are prepared to do something new and challenging may end up coming here. And, of course, you might ask questions of who in the residence among the residents in East Coast cities might dare go all the way to, say, Michigan or Kansas or all the way to Oregon and so on. So it seems very likely that settlers who are settlers are self-selected to be more independent, novelty-seeking, and so on. And finally, uh, there's a very important cultural heritage of Harding in the United States. So, Scottish harders settled in the United States, and they find their own place in dry highland of Southwest and the Mountain West. And we now know that this can account in part for, for Nisbet Niko and called culture of honor, which is held in place in American South. And also, in our own research, we have shown, actually in Turkey, that the herding is associated with some analytic, kind of quasi-scientific thinking, and if you think about it, it's pretty straightforward. In hunting, you really have to take care of lots of animals with very limited resources, probably one dog and one man. And if you look at hunter's behaviors, their behaviors are based on very scientific understanding about animal behaviors, and you really have to do it to get things done in this kind of environment. Again, that suggests that this kind of environment may conduce to uh, individualistic ethos. So overall, production of independent values and practices may have been encouraged in the Western frontier. And not only that, once those values are held in place, values are not easy to transmit from one place to the other. Values need to be nurtured, need to be created, need to be sustained, need to be transmitted across generations. Well, that's what you call tradition, right? You can imitate your clothes, that's one thing, but you cannot really easily imitate your, somebody's values because values are really deep-seated, meaning that they are associated with the stories, they are associated with a whole bunch of uh, emotional conditioning, which you acquire very early on in everybody's life. And as a consequence, values tend to be transmitted, tends to go vertically from one generation to the next, which means that the frontier doesn't exist anymore, except in space, obviously. Not geographical frontier anymore <laughs> exists, but nonetheless, it would be likely. It would seem likely that the values which are created, say, 100 or 200 years ago, may still be held in place, sticking to the place. If you analyze values in some systematic way, so that was the beginning of our analysis. So in one research, well, Hazel Marcus, a long-time collaborator, I wasn't part of this research, but Marcus and Plout. There's a very interesting secondary analysis of nationwide survey of Americans. Whole bunch of random sample for randomly sampled respondents, all Americans white Americans from all over the United States. There are many scales included in this survey, but some of them like oh I don't know how this works oh uh, Autonomy, environmental mastery, uh, positive relations, purpose in life, and so on, those are in some ways systematically related to independent or individualistic orientation, or just the opposite of it. So it seems very interesting to see if there might be some systematic regional variation. And to do this, those authors compared New England and the Mountain West that is, east coast region of the country and the mountain west front where frontier was really rampant. And there are many scales, as I mentioned to you. Some of them are not really relevant, like physical health or um, a positive affect, mental health. So just if you ignore those two subsets of scales, there emerge some very interesting patterns. So in comparison to New England, Mountain West tend to show higher means in autonomy, environmental mastery, self-satisfaction, personal growth, and self-acceptance, kind of dimensions which, are, which can be related to independence, individualism, whereas more relational commitment, say, for example, positive relations, social well-being, contribution, oh, no, that's an exception. Uh, uh, wait a minute, that's right, civic obligation and so on, on those dimensions, means for New England tend to be higher than the means in Mountain West. In other studies which make use of some existing demographic data, Vandero and Cohen analyzed well, created some indicator of individualism, as opposed to collectivism by using some census statistics, including percent of people living alone, percent of older people living alone, household without any grandchildren, divorce marriage ratio, no religious affiliation, Voting libertarian in past presidential elections, carpooling, that's reverse-coded, self-employed, and so on. Those are pretty you know, self-valid, uh, face-valid indicators of individualism or independence. And many of those behaviors are relatively important. You really have to decide whether you would like to live by yourself or you would rather live with your grandchildren or your grandparents, or you would like to carpool. Those are all substantive investment-related decisions in your life, and therefore those behaviors tend to reflect your personal values. Now, when you examine this, and examine the statistics, the pattern is pretty clear. Well, first of all, well, Dakar bar, Dakar Dakar color indicate collectivism and white essentially indicate very well, those states which are very high in this measure of individualism, and the mountain west is very, very individualistic as it compares to eastern coast uh, state but also, in addition to it southern states are higher in collectivism or lower in individualism, and California and Hawaii are exceptions probably for good reason, that is, those states are accepting immigrants, uh, Hispanics, Asians, and so on. But overall, this pattern is very consistent with the idea that Western frontier, particularly northern part of Western frontier, is associated with some deeply held value of individualism or independence. We also did recently very small project. We also counted a number of people, number of new babies with very common names, like Ken, Robert. You know, those are very common names. And this name data is available so that you can count number of babies who bear one of 10 most common names in the United States. Now, here, basically indicator goes the other way around, so if you have very strong value of individualism, you may end up giving very unique names. Right? And if you map the data in this way, then the results are also pretty straightforward. That is, here, green, light green indicates those states where common names are relatively uncommon. That is, they tend to give more unique names. So Mountain West and Oregon and Washington, those are very high in this commitment to uniqueness of the baby. Those are baby boys, and East coast state, East Coast regions are more collectivist or less uh, less um, uniqueness oriented. And how about girls? Well, pattern is different, and it's not clear exactly where why those differences are coming from and yet general pattern is pretty straightforward, so that mountain west and western regions tend to be more uniqueness oriented and therefore more individualistic as compared to eastern regions. Now, I explain this pattern in terms of production process. Underlining assumption is that frontier living is very, very challenging, and frontier is very novel environment that imposes real threat to your life even. And as a consequence, you really have to invest on some way to survive in that environment. In addition to that, population density is very low, social mobility very high. All those factors conduce to the creation and the production of individualistic values and presumably associated practices and those values are transmitted across generations. That's the argument. Second process, however, is adoption. Once you create some values, once you have some way of living, you, know, you can continue to live the life in that way. However, within any given group, you really have to compete with other people for status, for popularity, for mate, you know, eventual success in economic terms, or eventually you know biological terms, and this kind of competition happens by adapting some status signals, which is true in many cases a human being, but also we argue that that might be true in cultural adaptive processes. So uh, existing practices may be adapted from other regions or groups to improve one's social standing within the community. and worldwide adoption of Western clothes, for example, in the last hundred years or so, may be accounted for by positing some process like this. <clears throat> and uh, there, now we know in psychology and neighboring uh, field that adoption can happen very, very easily. So for example, Bandura and John Barge have done considerable work, of, well, considerable work demonstrating that mimicking is very automatic, especially when you are identifying with the model. So for example, if I like Rick, which I do, then Rick might move hand this way or that way or this way, and I tend to mimic. And now we know that very good biological basis may exist for this kind of mimicking behavior because now mirror neurons and mirror neuron systems have been identified not only for primates, or non-human primates, but also humans, and which are very, very effective biological system that conduce to this kind of mimicking. And, and also, uh, quite a few research in social psychology have shown that this kind of mimicking need not be behavioral. So mimic, mimicking can be mediated by cognitive representation of somebody's behavior. So... If somebody I really respect behave one way or the other, uh, now that I represent their behaviors, his or her behavior in in my own imagination, I tend to mimic that behavior as well. And I said mirror neurons. And finally, one very interesting finding in this area is that this kind of mimicking, no matter how automatic it is, it is not unconditional, and in fact, you never mimic behaviors of people you despise, for example. You mimic behavior of those people you respect, you emotionally identify with. And so that's where frontier and regional variation can become very important because American frontier is very unique in yet another way. American frontier was very successful. Very successful. Of course, lots of people are killed, Lots of people are stabbed to death, and so on. And yet, overall, American frontier was very successful. And in fact, this used to be called Richest Hill on the Earth. Uh, that's uh, Butte, Montana. And not only this, federal government really encouraged this expansion policy. Well, Bush administration did that in worldwide. However, series of government in, in the United States encourage this policy, expansion of territory, by creating some myth of frontier. Say, for example, this is the kind of book every American uh, typically is exposed to. The engine can do it. And, what? Well, you know, that's a funny story and a very good story. And, you know, this kind of story was endorsed by popular culture and eventually, you know, authority Uh, that governs the popular culture. And I think frontier discourse was encouraged so much by the mainstream culture, so that in the end, frontier culture of independence, where things get done in the frontier, were created, imagined to be very nice thing, very prestigious thing. And what might have happened as a consequence is that people outside of the frontier that is East Coast cities, may have begun to imitate or adapt frontier practices. They might have done so because frontier is so successful, so prestigious, so much authenticated by federal government and some other agencies of social power, so that residents in East Coast regions may have adapted, actively, mimicked and imitated Uh, very different nuances are associated with those words, but in the end, behavioral imitation of some sort may have happened so that frontier practices propagated back to East Coast regions. And so again, the idea is that initially independent practices were created, produced in the frontier because of survival need. If that's the case, you know, independence, individualism must be very high in the frontier regions, which, by the way, is the case if you look at very explicit values and the behaviors which are guided by those values. At the same time, what I'm saying is that the story doesn't end here, but equally importantly, frontier practices, ways in which things get done, ways in which people behave in daily conversations and daily you know dealings of, of many different kinds those frontier practices may have been adapted may have back propagated back to east coast essentially why because frontier was associated with prestige wealth and all sorts of things which are good so under those conditions cultural practices something that which is easier to imitate may be adapted may be imitated and once you adapt or create some practices which can influence the shape of your mind. So early on in my talk, I presented that attention tends to be more focused and dispositional bias is more prominent among American people. And the reason is that in American culture, there's a lots of Lots and lots of independent practices, and repeatedly participating in and engaging in those independent practices, and the corresponding psychological, psychological habits begin to take hold. Right? So, the idea is that once cultural practices of independence were created or adapted, the consequence is the same, that is, very implicit psychological tendencies of independence may may be created among the people who are living their life in that way. So, what I'm saying suggests something very interesting in some way. Uh, I believe that that's interesting, because uh, the basic <laughs> prediction is that America may be very diverse but also America may be very unified simultaneously, depending on which aspects of culture you are looking at. So if you look at implicit, explicit ethos, that is something extremely explicit, say values, and also behaviors which are guided by those values, there may be considerable regional variation. Why is that? Those values transmit across generations, those values do not travel easily because those values are deeply ingrained. Believing those values require a cascade of emotional conditioning, whole bunch of stories to be associated with such values and so on, so those values tend to stick to a particular place. So if you go to western regions of the United States, more greater amount or greater degree of independent or individualistic values still exist, which we looked at. At the same time, culture does offer a lot more implicit aspects. For example, I might ask you, how are you? This may be very innocuous way of just initiating social interaction, but in many other cultures, something comparable could be, oh, nice weather so there must be something here something like cultural value or something which forces you to focus on the self might have existed to create this characteristically american practice of asking somebody's state as opposed to the state of the environment right that's what i mean by independent practices that's one one example and those practices may have been created in abundance in western frontier and those are very easy to imitate especially if you are ready to imitate because you know model is very prestigious and very wealthy at least in the in the image and those conditions we argue has been met have been met in the West, western frontier and as a consequence those independent practices propagated across all over the country one consequence of that is that implicit psychological indicators of culture which are influenced by those implicit cultural practices may exist all over the country. So in terms of explicit ethos of independence, there may be considerable regional variation, as I mentioned to you. What is new in this prediction is that if you look into more implicit aspects of independence or individualism, how focused your attention is, or how much pride or self-esteem or anger are emphasized, or how big your symbolic self is, and so on. And then regional variation might, m- must be much less. Why? Because, again, independent practices are so prevalent in the United States because of this back propagation process. <laughs> All right, so, well, to test this in some systematic way, we did a a little study, uh, initial investigation. So here we tested uh, several campuses, uh, flagship state universities in Mountain West, University of Montana, and Midwest, University of Michigan, uh, East, uh, Eastern Region, University of Massachusetts, and South as well, uh, University of Georgia. And what we did was pretty straightforward. Uh, We asked people to indicate their endorsement of a whole variety of different values, including individualism and collectivism. And also we measured several indicators of what we call implicit independence. And we also looked at uh, different kinds of subjects. All subjects are American-European origin, European descent, however... Some European-Americans are long-term resident in that they are third or fourth or even more generations of parents or of somebody who immigrated. And some others are relatively newcomers. They themselves may have been immigrants, or their father or their grandparents were the immigrants. Okay? And we divide the subject in that way well, one nice thing, just that's a kind of a accidental characteristic. About half the people were long time resident on those campuses overall. About half were newcomers. So those are the values uh, we used. There are several different types, uh, conformity-related values, tradition-related values, or some others are more individualistic values such as self-direction, stimulation, hedonism, and so on. And all we asked subject to do was to indicate the most important value among those 56 values, and also least important value, and assign some anchor point, like seven and zero. And we asked subject to rate the rest of of the values in terms of this eight-point rating scale. Now, if we when we fact analyze those values, uh, the pattern was very clear. So that first factor was what you might call individualism, loaded negatively on conformity, tradition, and uh, positive loading was found for self-direction, stimulation, universalism, and the second dimension was related to status or power. And uh, in well, basically here. Uh, Hedonism and power, those have very high uh, loading. And uh, benevolence and universalism, those are more egalitarian-related values. Those have negative loadings. So if you flip things around, and then those are values which which go against power and status. And oftentimes individualism is associated with egalitarianism, Uh, although those two are dissociable, so this pattern does make sense. And in fact, when we looked at four regions, systematically in terms of those values, pattern was very, very similar. So here's a pattern. Um, Both in individualism and anti-power, Montana people, students in University of Montana, show very high means, whereas Georgians and Massachusetts residents were much lower. And interestingly, Michigan were no different from Montana. Uh, At this point, we really don't know why that might be the case, except surely Michigan had a substantial amount, period, of frontier experience as compared to Georgia or Massachusetts. So this might have something to do with it. But this pattern happened only for long-term residents, namely those students whose ancestors lived in the United States for three or more generations. When you look at uh, newcomers, there was no regional variation of this kind. So at least this, this seems consistent with the idea that those values need to be transmitted across generations so that if you are newcomers, no matter where you are living, you may not be caring values which are specific or unique to each of those regions. We also measured some implicit uh, indicators of individualism or independence. Here, prediction is that there might not be any regional variation. Reason is very simple. Again, practices, cultural practices, which are very important shaping in those psychological biases may be very prevalent in the United States because of adoption process. So there are several uh, indicators. So dispositional attribution, which I already discussed just a little bit, very early on in my presentation. Salience of engaged, disengaged emotions. Engaged emotion, those are more interpersonal emotions. Say, for example, friendly feelings or feelings of guilt and shame we asked them to report how strongly and how frequently they experience those emotions. Uh, Disengaging emotions, pride, self-confidence, anger, frustration, those are the emotions, disengaging emotions. Uh, So we subtracted amount to which degree of disengaging emotion from engaging emotion. Again, this indicator show that Americans are very unique, even in comparison to Western Europeans. And finally, well, the next indicator was also emotional, exactly when you might feel happy. Some people feel happy when they achieve some social harmony. You know, having good conversation with the parents, for example, that could be a source of happiness. But some other people feel happy, especially when you when they achieve something, or when they actualize some personal self, and so on. And people vary considerably. And again, Americans are very, very personal in their form of happiness in comparison to almost everybody else in the world. Even in comparison to Western <coughs> Europeans. So we measure that. And finally, symbolic self-inflation. Uh, that's a measure where we ask people to draw a social ground that is using circles to indicate yourself and your friends in your social network and you know, connecting those circles to indicate your social and one measure we devised uh, to indicate some some degree of self-inflation is the size of self-cycle, cycle, relative to the cycle of everybody else. And I didn't bring an example, but some of the examples of American data is just, just <laughs> ridiculous. You know, so a Self is like this. You know, there are quite a few people around, but they're extremely small. <laughs> uh, you might call it universal. You know, self is most important than you know, where you go. No, no, no. no. Uh, just go to visit Asian vellas and examine their data. Self is no bigger, and sometimes can be smaller than, than circles assigns to other people. So again, American self is much bigger worldwide, even in comparison to Western European family. Now, what's really amazing and interesting in this analysis is that there is no regional variation. Here's a disposition of bias in attribution. So across the regions, dispositional bias is very strong. People tend to say, oh, Rick is a wonderful person, he's kind and a marvelous without taking into account that there might be some social norms, a situational expectation. That's what I mean by dispositional bias. And if it's really true that dispositional bias is associated with individualism in some way, which it is, and then you might expect some systematic regional variation, but not. How about salience of disengaged, more independent oriented emotions? Again, well there seem to be some some minor variations, but statistically, those are really minor. And overall, overarching conclusion, is that there's no regional variation. How about form of happiness, personal as opposed to social? Again, there's some indication that the Montanans, Montanans are showing some more great, more personal form of happiness, but statistically, that's pretty weak, and again, Overall, Americans are very personal in the form of happiness. And finally, symbolic self inflation, I mean, there's nothing. Uh, Self is pretty dead. Way in which we account for this data is that those behaviors are very habitual. Habitual behaviors are formed by, formed through engagement in cultural practices, independent. Independent cultural practices have been created presumably in frontier as a result of high value placed on individualistic coveting bodies. However, those practices must have been adapted, must have back propagated to many regions in the United States, and as a consequence, if you look at those habitual indicators of independence, there's no regional difference. Now, I gave you uh, the naming of babies, and we struggled just a little bit to find habitual indicator of something very simple. Naming a baby is a big deal. And most likely, you recruit what you believe, what is good for the baby, and also for yourself, and choose the best person. Who cares? Oh no. So, we looked at percentage of vanity plays. And that seems like a very good indicator of habitual psychological tendency towards self-uniqueness. And in some other lines of research, we know that Americans are very highly motivated habitually towards self-uniqueness. They really like uniqueness. no at least in comparison to many other people in the world. So, given our reasoning, if we look at this habitual behavior, there may not be any regional variation. At least that's what our analysis seems to imply. You know, just look at very important behavior, there's regional variation in terms of independence, but habitual behavior like psychological habit, and then there may not be any regional variation at all. And that's the case. Here, obviously, there's some regional variation. Um, so here, blue-green uh, indicate a pretty individualistic state, uh, that is, states which have greater percentage of vanity plate, unique plates. And Montana is pretty high. Uh, that's consistent with the frontier hypothesis. But you know, many other states in eastern regions show the same characteristics and just the opposite is the case in some other states in western, uh, region, western part of the country. So overall, there's no regional variation at all. Now, there are some additional pieces of evidence uh, indicating that both production of independent values and adoption of those uh, associated practices are very important to take into account. First of all, I said to you, that Western regions are more individualistic because uh, because of settlement. And then you might expect that Americans themselves as a whole may be more individualistic as compared to Europeans. That is the case, as I mentioned. But the finding is very, very curious because we are not finding any regional variation within the United States if you examine habitual behaviors associated with. However, if you examine the identical set of measures across countries, Americans come out very high in individualism and independence. For example, focused attention or dispositional bias in attribution or individualistic emotion and so on. And our reasoning is that independent practices may not have been adopted as being a by Europeans as by East Coast residents, maybe because of you know national boundaries, maybe because of European disdain of American folks and so on. We don't know. But probably this absence of adoption for us might account for it. And also uh, we we are now studying little islands. In Japan, called Hokkaido, that is Northern Island in Japan. Here, Northern Island, Main Island, and so on. This Northern Island is very interesting because it was uh, just a uh, wilderness till 150 years ago. And ethnic Japanese immigrated to Hokkaido. And now we know that Hokkaido people are more independent in terms of some demographic census data. And also value data as well as more implicit psychological data. And the difference between American frontier and Japan's northern frontier is that American frontier enjoyed such a big success economically, but also uh, it enjoyed governmental endorsement. Neither of which. And finally, uh, back to American frontier, you might expect that some frontier practices which are not desired may not be adopted by the rest of the people. And that seems to be the case, at least in one case. That is, Niels Petrin-McCohen demonstrated that culture of honor, this violent aggression, up in South, is very, very strong in American South. And that has never become national culture at least right now. Mm-hmm. So, conclusion. So here, a uh, quote from an uh, American sociologist uh, who talked about just identical kind of idea uh, about a century ago, uh, Frederick Jackson Tanner. Uh, he said that American democracy, uh, the spirit of Unitarianism, was born of no theorist's dream, it was not carried in the Constant to Virginia, nor in, nor in the Mayflower to Plymouth. Oh, that's exaggeration, That's mm. exaggeration. However, <laughs> he, he's pointing at something very new and very valid, which is that American individualism and democracy came out of the American forest, namely frontier, and it gained new strength each time, it touched a new frontier. So new ethos of independence and individualism was created because of the struggle in the frontier, and frontier was very successful, and as a consequence, it may have become a national culture. So Americans are really weird. Well, very unique. Very unique because of two reasons. One, settlement experience, and just historical, say, accident. You know, this settlement history was very successful and also it enjoyed authority and dominance. So, well, uh, I presented today okay. this um, model. Uh, model um, in a way, <laughs> I hope that that can be a heuristic tool to investigate in cultural change in a more detailed way proposing essentially that, that there are two sub-processes which are very important in understanding cultural change. One, production of values and associated practices, and two, adoption. Those two processes are related, obviously, and oftentimes they coexist. But nonetheless, those two processes are conceptually distinct, and you can, I believe, that we can begin to understand some complex complexities dynamic complexes involved in cultural change by taking that into account, and we psychologists often study subjects in the language in any given local where we find ourselves. However, I believe that regional variation, looking at people cross-culturally, cross-regionally, might provide very rich source of data that might allow us to investigate, essentially, cultural change, and how culture might have come about might change in the end. So, thank you very much. like this Some of them uh some many of them didn't connect to the city living in the east coast, and at least that one very important consideration uh, that motivated many of those settlers to come there. And, and also, that, you know, it seemed to me that those settlers are very busy in making things large You know, just facing the important challenges in a life or death. And in East Coast cities, basically biological needs, well, so that's something I forgot to mention. Uh, in East Coast city living, basic biological needs, survival, even in political, economic sense, may have been met reasonably well. Under those circumstances, it really struggle for social status, social power, which really dominates the
2: assumption. Well, I understand why the West is more independent than the East. I guess what I, what I don't understand is why the East imitated the West. As you said, you tend to imitate, you know, other people if you view them as being more, oh, present, more prestigious <coughs> Yeah, yeah, that's
1: right. So we have some practices. practices on, right? Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, there were some practices well associated with authority, wealth, and prestige. that the assumption. And as a consequence, East post residents can still adapt those signs of, uh, so living on the frontier in a wagon and risking your
2: life is well, actually,
1: the cotton, the genes or mm-hmm. you know, how those are right. kind of fashion which are very uh, you know adaptable. Right. And also you know, I showed <coughs> you an engine that can do mm-hmm. uh, that kind of story, or in academia. norms or practices which encourage work to survive. Or what uh, showing down this kind of behavior. That is, you really have to express yourself and convince other people that you're right. You know, that's that's extremely independent in journalistic in, in form. And, and of course it's very hard to identify the exact source of those Mundane social practices, but I think the assumption that I'm making is that some prototype force of those practices, which are
3: very common in American social life, may have (laughs) frontiers. What's interesting about the Mershon Center is the interdisciplinary Mm -hmm. connection you get to talk about American history to American. Historians, yeah. and yeah, that's right. There aren't a lot of American historians here, but I think as one of them, I think I, I, I would say that the way, um, what surprises me about your talk, let me put it that way, is that you identify two things that I don't think are at all controversial. One is that there are aspects of American behavior which are distinctive relative to other Western industrialized countries. No argument about that, and a lot of your data supports it. The other thing that you identify again would be no surprise to any, any forget about it, historian, any American citizen, is that there are distinctive regional variations in the United States, mm-hmm. and one between the West and the East is right. the Then what I, it seems to me you make an analytical leap that this is all best explained by the frontier, and you conclude by going back to a historian who made that argument first in 1899. Mm-hmm. And in the 110 years since he made that argument, of course, it has been subjected to you know, small right. libraries full of books, <laughs> none of which you, you really speak to. And I, I what I don't understand analytically is how you go from your descriptive data to your conclusion in which you are relying on Turner. Turner would seem to be a scholar with feet of clay. To my colleagues who work on the history of the U.S. West for instance, or mm-hmm. one of my colleagues in intellectual history who've debated American exceptionalism and distinctiveness mm-hmm. for decades. So how does your work connect with historians who are interested in these very same questions? Well, um, <coughs> the
1: way which I see is that to uh, identify some historical factors, which may be identified and maybe used to account for a variety of different um, differences across areas. Now, I fully understand that my analysis, my hypothesis, is very simple model. especially in view of historical say it in part because I don't know too well. But also, I didn't say it because uh, today I wanted to focus on our psychological approach uh, to some extent. Now, uh, I think this simplification can be a problem if I or we ignore the historical documents, historical literature, historical expertise, which I try to avoid. Sure, I mean, Try avoid ignoring, and I try to be informed as much <coughs> as. I. However, simplification sometimes has a value because you can, say, for example, uh, analytical approach is to see if this very simple-minded hypothesis may may still be useful in accounting for some different things, including regional variation in the U.S. Why, you know, regional variation exists in one. Also, you know, uh, cross-cultural differences across, say, Pacific say, for example, in the United States and Western Europe. Or, uh, you know, very similar regional variation, may be expected as a function of some historical factor of immigration in some other you know, geographic space, including Japan. So, yes. Well, certainly, very, very, very simplistic. However, simplistic assumptions is sometimes very useful just to look at some other possibilities by using this as a heuristic tool. I think that's what we're doing. And uh, I I hope by engaging in conversation like this, this idea can be informed greatly by expertise in history, geography, and so on, and that can be very useful.
3: for the fun of it, that there's a series of possible explanations for the two factors that you're trying to explain. Mm -hmm. Regional differentiation in the U.S. Mm -hmm. and American distinctiveness in the global community. Mm -hmm. Why focus on one possible explanation? Why not use your data collection to demonstrate why, let's say, Explanation A is secure to Explanation you're just giving us one possible explanation.
1: Well, that's right, uh, and, and you know our way of trying to do it, trying to accomplish it, is to go to some other part of the world and to see if the same idea might be used to account for something new. So. Uh,
4: It's a host uh, of mining ranches.
1: Kind of a framework I discussed today is not really a statement about the truth, but it should be taken as a heuristic tool. So, uh, you know, if we have this model uh, allows to, you know, investigate one more thing uh, or motivate us to, to find out something is like that or like this in, say, you know, Canadian comparison, for example. Uh, you know, that's very You may on the way.
5: that the
1: the pattern we found for baby boys
6: and, baby cars. and uh, yeah, that to be accounted for. Uh, did you account for the cost of those license plates in different states We
1: did, did actually we, we, we did. We did. Yeah we did. We that, that didn't well we tried to see what you control for the cost of buying those, those things, plates uh, we might be able to
7: want to explain something about Japan yeah. because you grew up in Japan and your, your mind as, as a young well, scholar growing up your yeah. mind is filled with Japanese yeah. type questions and you come here right. to be yeah. a graduate student but in some way it, it's those original questions that come out of that and as I was listening to your story about Hokkaido and so forth I, I couldn't make that connection because to me the Hokkaido aspect is not a very important part of understanding modern Japan. Oh, very different, very different. But in the United States, of course, this is I mean, just resonates with everybody, <laughs> political scientists, of course. W- we all all are always thinking about red states versus blue states and stuff like that. And that's just speaking to this. But, but it's not such an important question in Japan, is it? Or will you tell me that it is in some way that I don't appreciate? It? Well, um,
1: red states. Ethnicity as a reasonable explanation. Uh, um, or it's a
3: nationality. That's Well. Uh,
1: That is, uh, Americans are weird. That is, if that's the correct can call them unique in some (laughs) different ways. And yet, much of the data, and how do we know to be true about human nature, is based on this particular American, particular human population. And so, finally way to- very different Asian American are surely different kind of and you know that's another thing I forgot to tell. That is, here the story I try to construct the reconstruct has relates to European American essentially. And how you know <coughs> African Americans uh, can live in that's a different story that needs to be investigated in own right. And you know just speaking to social science and (coughs) weird American people being, you know, clearly black American way from social science literature, surely from psychological literature. And uh, that's another very big project somebody needs to embark on. We really believe that. But, you know, in respect to my particular goal today, that's about your dream. Not because I believe
6: Behaviors and input. Mm-hmm. And, like, and maybe I'm mangling this, um, but I thought I understood that it, with regard to the implicit measures that there is less regional variation. Right, that's right. So, and does that?
1: No. Or I propose that from here practices of independence may have been adapted historically
6: by East Court. Okay, so it, it occurs to me though that um in equal it, I, I guess I have to say I share the first question there's um, doubts about what would be attractive to the Easterners about imitating the Westerners in these respects. Mm-hmm. It, it strikes me about Westerners is they all started out as Easterners. And so it could be that the story that ought to be told is the story in which these sort of implicit habits of independence are formed as part of the Eastern experience. Moving west doesn't change. What changes, for some reason, are just the explicit cultural manifestations. And you know, because we don't least I didn't see in these slides a kind of time right. study. Um, you know, we don't know that the Easterners, for example, were Easterners any less imbued with these habits before the Western migration than after? My suspicion is not. And, and, and I, and so I, I'm this is the pure guess, but my guess is actually the ways it
1: Oh. So I wanted the uh, back and I have done to... that.